Thanks for joining us on Battle Walks as we walk across the great battlefields of Europe. If you're enjoying the show, why not become a member? Every week, you'll receive exclusive bonus episodes available only to subscribers, and you can listen to all our episodes completely ad-free. Click on the link in the show notes to join us via ACAST+. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. A Living History Production. I'm Matt McLaughlin. And I'm Pete Smith. We're battlefield historians who love nothing better than getting out and walking the ground where great battles in history took place. And now we'd like you to come with us. Every week, Battle Walks will take you to one of the great battlefields of Europe. As we walk the ground, we'll dig through the pages of history, we'll uncover the secrets of the battlefields, and most importantly, we'll tell the stories of the people who fought and died there. Welcome to Battle Walks. Hello and welcome to Battle Walks. I'm Battlefield historian Matt McLaughlin and once again we're going to be walking a quite extraordinary European battlefield. Joining me as always is my partner in crime, it's Pete Smith. Pete, it's going to be a good walk today. Yep, it is. Hi Matt. So we're heading back to the Somme um, and a battlefield that I think is probably one of the most underrated Australian battlefields of the entire First World War. It's the Battlefield of Dernancourt. Now most people would not have heard of the battlefield of Dernancourt. Perhaps if you live in Adelaide, you would be aware that there's a suburb called Dernancourt, as they call it down there in Adelaide. But that's really the only reference I've seen to this battle. Yet, it's a really important one. And as far as 1918 goes, it was one of the most important actions the Australians fought in. Uh, it was indeed, uh, and, and I agree. It, it, it's not one that even when you're guiding on the battlefield that we go to, it doesn't fit readily into the, the route that we uh, that, that we normally drive. We have a set route that we follow, and then and kind of is in between two of the roads, and, and all we normally do is whistle past it and point it out. And yet, it is a very important action. Well, why don't you give us the summary, mate? Let's see one of those excellent Pete Smith two-minute potted histories. Tell us why the Battle of Dernancourt is so important. Okay, well, it's important of where where it is in in the timeline. So we're in 1918. We're just close to the town of Albert, and it's towards the end of this enormous drive by the Germans, the Spring Offensive, the Michael Offensive, where they're they're attempting to break through and get to Amiens and then the coast. Um, They've been slowed down because of uh, hitting Albert, the town itself. And oddly, what slowed down this German drive is the fact that they're overrunning supply depots and uh, where there's beer and chocolate and and uh, and stores and in fact they're going on a binge because the German army hasn't got a lot of food they're, they're, there's not a lot of food about in the in the German army there's certainly not a lot of food in Germany and so to suddenly hit these supply depots 
you'd think they'd be really chuffed, but actually it's slightly demoralised them. Not more than slightly, it demoralises them because they'd been told that we were almost starving as well, that the, the Empire uh, troops were not being supplied because of the German submarines taking out uh, the shipping coming from America and that uh, uh, it meant that there, were, there was a lack of food in, the, in, in our army as well, in the British army, the Empire's forces. It's not true, and obviously this is where they realise that it's not true as they, uh, as they binge on the chocolate and beer. So once they'd actually got through Albert and, and to the far side of Albert, we get to this little town of Dernancourt. Now, I have to have a, a, a talk about how are we going to stop this advance? Well, there were supposedly blocking positions that had been dug in the past, that if the Germans had broken through, which they have done the, our frontline positions, then we were going to stop them at various stopping points. And this is one of the stopping points. The unfortunate thing is that the stopping point has basically been filled in by the farmers, the trenches that had been pre-dug to attempt to stop any German breakthrough. The farmers who have been allowed back onto the land thought, well, this trench isn't needed any longer. I'm going to start filling it in. So a lot of the positions that should have been built to try and stop the uh, the German advance are not there. And so it means that we're trying to ad hocly hold the Germans in, in various places. So Dernancourt becomes one of those places. How did the Australians get involved in Dernancourt? Well, the Australians were actually still across in, in Belgium and had been moved, slowly moving across to the Somme battlefield again from Belgium. And there's a rush, there's suddenly a realisation that there's an, actually a gap in the line, that there's nobody defending the bit at Dernancourt, and it's a, it, Dernancourt sits almost between two rivers. We have the River Somme and the River Onk. It's actually sitting on the River Onk, but effectively between two rivers, and there was nobody there holding that line. So Australian divisions, two of them are rushed in, the 3rd Division and the 4th Division. And it's the 4th Division that we're going to be talking about who are moved in at Dernancourt to try and stop the advance. The date is actually the 28th of March for the the first battle, because there are two battles, 28th of March and the 5th of April. We generally speaking just call it the Battle of Dernancourt and it covers both of those dates. So the, the thing that I think is so astonishing about this, Pete, is that after this huge battle, which we will describe in detail as we walk around the battlefield, this was actually the largest attack Australians faced during the entire First World War, wasn't it? It's extraordinary. I mean, they're facing, first of all, on the first battle, two divisions and they hold. And then they're facing three divisions where we actually lose our frontline positions and more about that as we as we follow the, the, the route of the attack. But yeah, it's an, an enormous weight of German manpower. It, it is those, uh, I suppose, what, what have been seen by the, the British Army in 1914. Ranks and ranks of Germans moving forward and actually becoming a very good target for the, the Lewis gunners and the, uh, the machine gunners. So not seen really since 1914 and certainly probably never seen by the Australian troops before rank and rank of Germans advancing towards them. Before we start walking the battlefield, Pete, what I should say is I absolutely love this battlefield because unlike many of the Western Front battlefields, which today are just flat farm fields, this one is laid out in front of you. It's, it's an interesting piece of ground. The Australian War Memorial did a, an amazing diorama depicting this battlefield, and you can see those elements that are still there, the railway embankment, the quarry, the, the slope down which the Australians advanced. There, there are features here that, that sit very neatly with the history. So it's one of those battlefields you can walk and get a very good feeling of what the fighting was like. It is indeed. We're going to be walking from the Germans' perspective, so we're going to be on the railway embankments or just beneath it. So there's a, a bridge there, so we're going to be a bit below the bridge, looking up to the Australian positions. In fact, they were also on the embankments on one side, the Germans were on the other. Um, and from those positions, you can see the whole of the battlefield, right up to the top of the ridge. Uh, the, the, that is the battlefield, effectively. So um, it is a superb battlefield to walk. Well, let's begin that walk. Where are we going to start, Pete? 
Right, so we'll, we'll start underneath this railway uh, embankment, the bridge that goes uh, underneath it. Behind us is the village, so everything is behind us. The whole village of Dernkor is behind us, and it's in German hands. So the Germans have taken the village, they're living within the, the cellars and the buildings, and utterly bizarrely, there are reports from uh, Australians who are observing the Germans moving and seeing that there are villagers still there, elderly people. There are still elderly people who are within the village who did not run away when the Germans started advancing. They stayed in, in their village. Um, so the Germans are in the village and they've got, uh, they're behind this embankment, so it's protecting them. We are on the other side of the embankment and effectively the pressure is going to build and build and build until the Germans try to come over the railway embankment. On the other side of the embankment, so if we walk through the railway bridge and, and look in front of us, we can see several important things. We can see a cemetery, a military cemetery, and a civil cemetery. They are side by side. And then the ground rises in a convex slope. In other words, it gets steeper as, they, as you walk into the, the slope. Um, and, uh, and there were trenches on the top of that slope as well, on top of the ridge. So we're looking at the whole battlefield. We can see the remnants of the quarry on our right. We can see a little bit of a quarry on the left near the railway line. Uh, so it's all there in front of us. And that's the view that the Germans are going to get as they climb over the embankment on the, the morning, on the dawn of the 28th of March in their first attempt to force the Australians back. I love the accounts of this attack on the 28th of March because it just it just really puts you in that front line. So if we imagine Australians spread out in posts along this railway embankment and then tell us about the noise of the Germans approaching in this dark, foggy, pre-dawn light. Yeah, well, there are several reports and uh, there's, a, there's a chap here that's going to be awarded the Victoria Cross for the fighting here, uh, Stanley McDougall, a sergeant in the 47th Battalion. Better just name the two battalions fighting here. The 47th uh, Battalion and the 48th are uh, fighting alongside the 19th, a British uh, battalion, the Northumberland Fusiliers, 19th uh, Battalion of the Northumberland Fusiliers. Now, they're, they're on the side of the railway embankment um, and they can hear this, this noise as the Germans approach. They can hear their their and it's banging on their spades, their shovels, which are alongside their fastened side by side on their hips. So it's this, this slapping noise and they know exactly what it is. And they start, uh, I suppose, sticking their heads up. It's, it's dark. This is a, going to be a dawn attack. Um, and waiting for them to, to crest their eyes because they have to come over the, uh, over the, the embankment. So this is a fairly you know, steep, high embankment. Um, and so they're waiting for them to, uh, to crest, crest their eyes and they can hear the noise as they're, as they're approaching. It's fascinating to think that of what it must have been like in the dark to hear that sound, to know exactly what it meant. It must have been absolutely terrifying for the men on the embankment. And we should say as well that the Australians were not occupying this railway embankment in one long, continuous line of men. A number of small posts with Lewis guns and, and, uh, and other infantrymen um, because the, the Australian numbers were so thin that they couldn't form a cohesive line along the railway embankment, could they? Yeah, there were two issues, I suppose. And the first one is, this is not the trenches. This is not, we have this mental kind of imagery of the First World War and the trenches and the barbed wire. Well, here, this is not because this is us building ad hoc positions to try and stop the Germans. So there's nothing linking the front line, these men that are fighting on the embankment to the, the, the reserve positions. And then even further back, there's something called Pioneer Trench, which is over the over the crest on the next crest, really. Um, so it's, it is is the difficulty is in moving men backwards and forwards is a difficulty in communication and so really the guys in the front line on these banks are, are fairly, fairly much exposed and, and fighting independently. So tell us this incredible story as the Germans came over this railway embankment and, and the Australians faced them in the uh, in the foggy morning. 
well, somebody's got to do something. It's like all attacks. You know, you're almost uh, frozen in as you as as they watch them climbing over. Uh, and this one guy, this Sergeant Stanley uh, McDougall, realised that that some of the guys would probably be dozing. Some of them may not be uh, aware of what's going on, and he had to make them aware. And so he, he he grabs a couple of guys and they start running along the embankment, screaming and shouting. You know, they're coming, they're coming over the uh, over the embankment. Uh, he's with a Lewis gunner, and the Lewis gunner is is hit. Um, and he grabs the Lewis gun. He's not uh, been uh, trained in a Lewis gun to any extent. He would have a, a basic working knowledge of it, but he's certainly not a Lewis gunner. And he opens fire with his Lewis gun and starts spraying it uh, like a hosepipe along the top of the embankment as he's running along that embankment himself um, and clearing the Germans off it. Those Germans that had already got over the embankment found themselves to the left of him and uh, and in difficulty because he's now clearing the top of the embankment single-handedly. And so the men... All the other men wake up and uh, and open fire, and eventually the the attack is very easily. Uh, well, that's probably probably not to the men that were there, but they are the Germans are turned around. They're either killed, captured, or forced back over the embankment. The men climb up. Very unusual. This the men climb up and, and stand in the open, uh, hosing down with other Lewis guns and machine gunners uh, and individual riflemen firing down on the Germans as they try to withdraw back through the village. So it's it's a, an amazing. Uh, success with limited numbers against overwhelming, as we said, that here we have two divisions basically facing three or four battalions. He's an extraordinary character, Stan McDougall. I always like reading about him. There was some controversy over Charles Bean's depiction of him in the official history because there's a couple of different versions of what Stan McDougall actually got up to. And it seemed that when Bean spoke to him, he wasn't particularly impressed with McDougall as a, as a forthcoming chap. And so, uh, so told the story in, uh, in, a, in a fairly subdued manner. But um, I think one of the great Victoria Cross actions, it was, it was really a, a perfect example of one man just seizing control of the situation, rallying everyone around him, being everywhere, doing everything, and, um, and, and, and you know, a well-earned Victoria Cross. I, I like the comment that he's supposed to have said that when he picked up the Lewis gun, he's always w- wanted to have a go with one of these because um, apparently he'd never fired one in anger before. So, so I, I just uh, have this this picture of him picking it up and thinking, "Well, oh, yeah, this is great. No, uh, this is this is the right weapon to have." Uh, but anyway, yeah, it was a, a, a truly well earned uh, Victoria Cross. The Aussies who fought there on March 28 must have thought that they'd done great work stopping the Germans, but little did they realise that the uh, the, their work was just beginning because describe what happened in early April. Yeah, I think it's interesting, isn't it? Because it's the same two battalions. So even though battalions would have been rotated normally, uh, it's still holding that section of line. It's still going to be the 47th and the, the 48th battalion who will be holding the line. So uh, literally a week later on the 5th of April, the Germans are going to attempt it again. Um Interestingly, there's another battalion that's there that is very, even in the official history, is not talked about a great deal, just mentioned. But the 4th Pioneer Battalion was also there, and they were actually trying to attempt to dig holes through the top of the embankment so that machine guns could fire through the embankment. And they were actually in the, in the, uh, the act of uh, digging those holes when the attack came in on the 5th of April. So they were, they were actually there uh, uh, to, to assist. And it's actually the first time that the 4th Pioneer Battalion had actually been used as infantry. They are normally a pioneer 
pioneer, pioneer battalion is normally used for digging and road work and frontline fortifications. And that's what they're trained for, to be able to pick up their rifles and use them uh, if necessary. So they are, actually can act as an infantry battalion. But this was the fi- first time that they'd been asked to do so. Uh, and uh, they had problems. Uh, they were overwhelmed, as was everybody, really, that was in the uh, on the railway embankments. Uh, the, the complete right side of the 47th Battalion was over overrun, uh, along with the 4th uh, Pioneers who were working there as well. Uh, the big problem is, how do you disengage? If you're being overrun by a weight of numbers, and that's what's going on, it's the weight of numbers of three divisions of Germans coming over that, not all obviously exactly at the same time, but ongoing, coming over the embankment and forcing the men back. How on earth do you disengage, and where do you get to? Well, you've got to run across this sloping landscape, this sloping ground, through the remnants, interestingly, of a casualty clearance station that was still there. It had not uh, they'd evacuated the, the casualties when the Germans first approached, but the uh, the building buildings were still there, the tents and the hut and some of the huts. So they had to run through these uh, and try and get up the slope, uh, being covered by the men in the reserve trenches that were higher up. But it was it was very different to the first attack. The Germans had sorted it. They realised that all they needed were more men. And that's the one thing they had a lot of at that time, a lot of men to, to throw against them. So let's walk in the footsteps of those attacking German troops. And it's something I love to do when I go to Dernancourt is to walk through the under the bridge at the, in the railway embankment and just picture that you're a German charging up that slope uh, early in the morning of uh, the 5th of April. Yep, and uh, and charging up that slope they did. Now, the the good thing from the defensive positions w- was the amount of mortar fire that was coming down. They had the Stokes mortar, this very light mortar, run by the infantry battalions, and the guys that were further up on the slope in the reserve trenches were able to bring down an enormous weight of mortar fire. In fact, one of the mortars fired all of its rounds, 370 rounds. It fired every one at the, uh, at the Germans. And so the uh, amount of, uh, of firepower from these mortars would have assisted in the half light. Now, what I should say is what is also assisting the Germans at this time is the fact that this is a very, very misty morning. So it's uh, early morning and, and it's misty. And uh, the visibility was was almost uh, nil. And that leads to a problem, is that normally what you do, you would fire an SOS rocket. So if you're in the frontline soldier of being overrun, you fire an SOS rocket that would bring down artillery fire to protect you almost on your own frontline trenches. Used throughout history once artillery is uh, is uh, becomes a formidable weapon and so that's what would normally happen but they fired their rockets no result the artillery men who were fair further back about three miles or four miles further back could not see the rockets so they didn't bring down any supporting artillery fire so that was one of the big issues is uh, it's down to the mortars to do the job and the machine gunners to try and slow down the german advance as they as they're forcing us back up this up these positions the attack was so quick and so overwhelming that actually there was a, a group of machine gunners who were in one of the quarries. It's the, so this is just a quarry cut into the bank and it gave them some elements of fire. They never even got their guns into action. They were overrun before they could get their guns into action. So we're going to walk along the road, having left the uh, the cutting, going through the uh, embankments, and we're going to walk up towards the, the quarry where the quarry is, where these machine gunners were actually overrun. And um, on the left-hand side, as we walk up, we're going to go past a, a cemetery. I'll talk about the cemetery at the end because it's just uh, it's not really relevant to the fighting, but it's an interesting uh, point because the cemetery would have been there. The cemetery had been created by the casualty clearing stations that were based uh, there, so there was a cemetery actually, uh, both civil and military. So we walk past it up 
uh, up the the slope. So this is climbing up the slope, and we eventually get to the uh, to the quarry. Now this is a good place to start to look back behind you, and you will see the view that the Australian machine gunners and mortarmen would have had before they also had to abandon their positions because they will be forced further back. But this is the positions that uh, they really that stopped the German advance uh, in its tracks here by the number of casualties. The casualties of the Germans were we don't know exactly how many because of course the Germans held the ground and so they were able to uh, evacuate their wounded and dead at the end of this action but um, this is as far as they will really get they will go a little further and then they'll be forced back so from this position we can look back and we get a really good view of the cemetery and also of the railway arch and this embankment um, so it's a little bit like looking at the diorama at the war memorial here this is the start of the the view that we'll we'll see and you can see how important this embankment will be because the Germans can hide behind it, the village is behind it, but once they're over it, then they are in a killing field. So long as we can keep machine guns and mortars firing at them, then they are in a killing field. That walk up to the quarry, Pete, is always a very um, emotional one, I find. It's very atmospheric because the road is slightly sunken. As you walk up, you can look back behind you. It's really easy to put yourself in the shoes of those Germans. And, and obviously coming up the slope, they were looking for any cover they could get. And so a lot of the Germans who charged up that slope came up and use the road for cover. And then when you get up to the quarry, depending on what's going on with the quarry, it's quite overgrown. There's a wood behind it, which is in private hands, which you shouldn't go into. But depending on what's happening, the state of the quarry, you could do a bit of exploring there as well. And you can you can picture what it must have been like for those poor Aussie machine gunners who were setting up their machine guns in that quarry and didn't realise that the Germans were overrunning them until shots started coming at them from behind. It must have been terrifying. Yeah, indeed. Uh, there was quite a number of men that were, were actually captured here as well. And sadly, most of those that died here uh, would not be recovered until the end of the, almost the end of the war as the Germans fall back uh, at the, uh, in the last hundred uh, days of the fighting. So, so there was, uh, there's not an awful lot of men who are, uh, were not able to be identified. But it's, uh, yeah, it's a fantastic feeling to look back down. And, and like all of these battlefields, you can walk into the fields and you can pick up the bits of shrapnel still and steel that, that, that are in amongst the, uh, the plough lines. Uh, obviously when you, when you can not if the seeds are in the farmers don't like it if the if you're walking there when the seeds are in but it's um as we said at the beginning of the podcast it's a it's a great one because it's so visual you can look at it from the australian perspective you can look at it from the german perspective and all the time you are looking at almost the entire battlefield the one thing i should say is to our left when we look to the left, so we're looking down towards the railway embankment, but if we look to our left, we can see the Basilica of Albert. So we realise how close we are. Very famous uh, basilica um, in Albert. It's got the uh, the Virgin Mary and baby Jesus uh, held out to the sky. And, of course, it had become a very important point to everybody uh, fighting in this area and living in this area when the Germans had been forced back because she dangled over the town at 90 degrees. So it's something that perhaps we'll talk about in a further podcast when we're talking about Albert. So it is a very famous uh, icon and, and remembered by uh, most people who uh, had fought in the area. Now, sadly, at this point, it has also been uh, knocked down. We can still see it because the, the stubby tower is there, but the, the Virgin Mary and, uh, and baby Jesus have gone. They've been actually hit by our shells. So it's British uh, shells that will eventually knock her down. But you can get the gist of where Albert is because you can see her on the left-hand side. There's an interesting um, story about a couple of the machine gunners that were in the quarry where we're standing right now that I just wanted to share with listeners because it's it's quite fascinating. And uh, there were two uh, two Aussies in the quarry at the time the Germans overran them, Corporal Charles Lane and Private Rinhold Rushpler of the 29th Machine Gun Company. And they were, I think, effectively the first Australians to enter Dernancor Village for a very long time because they did so as prisoners as the as the Germans overran them and took them prisoner. They uh, They were captured... 
And it was a fascinating account of what happened to them. They were marched down the slope by the Germans. The, the, as you said, the most harrowing part of the journey was dodging the Australian artillery fire that was coming down. There was just such a weight of artillery fire. But they managed with a bunch of other prisoners to get down to the village of Dernancourt, uh, accompanied obviously at the point of the bayonet by the Germans. And then they described how they were lined up there and a German officer came along who spoke English and he asked them who they were. And when one Australian soldier in their group said, we're the Australians, and apparently gave him a bit of a lip, the German took out his revolver and shot the Australian dead on the spot. And the feeling was that he remembered the Australians from earlier battles in 1916 and uh, wasn't too keen on seeing a bunch of Australians uh, in his lines again. But then um, these two soldiers were marched back to a a prison camp at Bray, another Somme village not too far away, which would be the scene of heavy fighting later in 1918. And extraordinarily, they were in a, a makeshift wire barbed wire cage and an allied shell landed and blew a hole in the in the cage and they ran for it they scarpered they got through the german lines and then had a harrowing journey back across the german lines and back into the australian lines where they were almost shot by an australian sentry as they tried to get back to the lines but eventually they did make it back to the australian lines and continued fighting for the rest of the war and both of them survived the war which i think is just an extraordinary story so for two days they were prisoners of the germans but managed to uh, but managed to carry on and fought until the end of the war. Just an extraordinary story. I, I love these little stories. I mean, there are so many little stories like that, and they all need telling. Uh, but uh, yeah, that's 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 extraordinary. And I mean, and you can imagine the, with the confusion of the movement and uh, and also half light and uh, the the, uh, the look that you need as well, and a massive element of luck to get back to your own lines. Yeah, great story. They also described how when they were in the village of Dernancourt, one of them was lightly wounded, and he was tended by a German surgeon who took care of him and the, the German wounded around him as well. And then a shell struck the building and took the head of the, of the of the doctor clean off as he was tending to his wounds. So, you know, again, I always think about the, the story of war to me, Pete, is these personal stories. What was it like for the blokes that were there? And you think about these two guys and what did they live with for the rest of their lives having, having been through, even just on this couple of days, what a harrowing experience. And it was probably something that was standard for most men in the line every day of their lives they're in the war. Um, I, I would recommend that if you want to try and just pick up on some of these stories, then one of the places to go to, there are lots of places you can go to to, to learn the stories, but uh, the, the Australian Red Cross Missing Inquiry Bureau files, a bit of a mouthful, but they are full of first-hand accounts of, of what happened to, to individuals on, on the battlefield. And certainly when I did some research a few years ago about the 4th Pioneer Battalion fighting here, there was just some extraordinary stories uh, uh, of what had happened to individuals on the battlefield. So, yeah, I highly recommend the the the, uh, the Red Cross files if you have time to go. But they're all online, so you can you can pick them up quite easily. That's on the Australian War Memorial website. There's accounts of more than 30,000 soldiers who were wounded or killed during the First World War. And basically, inquiry files, committees set up to try and determine what had happened to men who went missing on the battlefield. So some extraordinary and heart-wrenching stories that are found in those files. But um, So... Back to Dernancourt. We're standing at the quarry. Um, explore the quarry if you can. If it's not too overgrown, it's worth getting down there and having a look. There's always uh, shells and things lying around that the farmer has gathered up. But let's leave the quarry now, Pete, and walk actually across the battlefield. We're going to walk. We're going to turn right in front of the quarry and walk along a farm track. Walk across the battlefield. We're, we're parallel now to the railway embankment, although probably a kilometre or more removed from it. And again, as you walk along this slope, you get a fantastic perspective. This is probably an area where one of the Australian trenches was. It's, 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 it's round about this area where this track is. And again, you just get this extraordinary view down that slope to where you can imagine literally thousands, tens of thousands of Germans streaming up that slope in the, in the foggy morning. 
I, I think I think that's a great a great image to think about. But I always have a, a more terrifying image, and it's those Australians who are, have survived the initial rush of the Germans over the embankment, scrambling up towards you, trying to get back into their reserve positions. I mean, that must have been just a terrible a terrible time to try and get get away from the front line up that slope. But many many did. Um, almost uh, half of the uh, of the forty seventh battalion got away, so they they were able to get up that slope and to the reserve positions where they carried on fighting until they then forced out of those positions again uh, further up the slope and onto a, almost a plateau and just beyond the plateau they had the the final positions uh, that uh, was Pioneer Trench called Pioneer Trench and that's where they will hold the Germans and that's where the counterattack will come from as well. As we walk further along this road Pete up to sort of our, to our diagonal left is another quarry which is up on the main road and it's it there's not much to see there now it's really just a it's really just a bank so it's it's not worth diverting from the track to go and see it but there's one extraordinary story there that after the great counterattack where the Australians took back these German positions, which we're going to discuss in a moment, the as they came through, they found uh, an isolated grave of an Australian soldier who'd been buried by the Germans and a cross, a rough cross over his grave and written in indelible pencil on the cross was, here lies a brave English soldier, written in English. Uh, and the Germans, of course, referred to all of the, the British soldiers as English soldiers, whether they were Australian or New Zealand, Canadian or indeed from England. But the Germans had buried a soldier there and written on his cross in English, here lies a brave English warrior. Now, you just imagine with, you know, honour and dread what that bloke went through. Probably a Lewis gunner left behind who fought so bravely before he was killed that the Germans decided to honour him after they'd, after they'd finished him off. He fought so bravely that they decided to bury him and honour him with a headstone written in English. Just, I just shudder to think what that man must have gone through in the in the in the last moments of his life. I, I think there's, there's that point, and, and uh, of course, the utter utter terror and uh, and suddenly ending of his life. But I also like to think about the Germans that they actually went to the effort to to bury them, as they did an awful lot of the Australians who will be killed on this battlefield, because uh, it wouldn't have been easy. Uh, one of the things that I often make a point of is you don't risk the living to bury the dead, and especially if the dead happens to be your your enemy. But uh, on these fields, it uh, it appears that the Germans went to a big effort to bury as uh, as many of the men. Uh, as they possibly could, because they're going to be exhumed by the exhumation parties after the war. And uh, quite a few have markers on their graves. So the Germans had hammered in, even if they hadn't written anything on it, uh, on the marker, but they'd actually marked where they were actually burying them, which is also unusual because... You don't do that if you haven't got time, but they obviously felt in this action that they, they wanted to. And so, uh, yeah, a lot of the, uh, the graves of multiple men sometimes were marked. A lot of this um, story we hear about warfare with, you know, comrade amongst enemies, you know, comradeship amongst enemies, I think it's a little bit overblown. But there are examples like this one where it does seem that the, the Germans were quite uh, quite impressed with the, uh, the, the, the bravery and the tenacity of the Australians they were facing. Just extraordinary stuff. We're going to keep walking along the path and then take a right turn. Now we're heading back down the slope towards the railway embankment. Let's talk about this amazing, this, this, this counterattack that should be better known than it is, Pete. Well, uh, and again, we don't really, again, if you read casually read books on the uh, on the fighting here, we tend to concentrate on the, the 47th and 48th because we feel, I suppose, they fought hard on the first uh, battle. They're going to be overrun on the, on the second battle. And what we forget is that, that this, this counterattack that t- uh, took place, um, which was a very, very successful counterattack, um, which will uh, force the Germans back, uh, almost back to uh, their uh, their starting point, but not quite. They will continue to hold the the um, 
the, the railway embankment and they will continue to hold the reserve trenches uh, as well. Um, it was the 45th and the 49th battalions who will, uh, who will lead the charge on the counterattack. So uh, there's a fantastic account of the counterattack um, in uh, Ted Lynch's book, uh, Som Mud. Uh, he talks about the uh, the attack at uh, as being part of the 45th as they came down the slope and some quite harrowing details. But it, and absolutely, just I mean, if we want to talk about the Aussies and how great they were as fighters, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, this is a great example. The, the Australians really should be lauded here for what they did because the same, you know, the, the same divisions that had been overrun reassembling charging back down the slope, pushing the Germans back, even though they were massively outnumbered, forcing those Germans back uh, to about halfway down that slope. Just an absolutely extraordinary feat of arms that we would see numerous times, not just from Australians, of course. We saw it from Canadians. We saw it from French. We saw it from British troops. We saw it from Germans many times as well. So it was just the nature of the fighting in the First World War and something that should not be overlooked, the idea that you would take ground and then the enemy would counterattack fairly swiftly to seize that ground back. So this concept of ground changing hands quite rapidly is really a hallmark of the fighting in the First World War. Uh, it, it is indeed, and it's something that the Germans were very proud of, their, their counterattacking. But of course, we learn from them, them as they learned from us. So it's something that, that we realise that if you counterattacked very quickly, then the, German, uh, the Germans in this case were still finding their way about, still trying to, uh, to dig in. And uh, we, we very quickly uh, rolled them up and pushed them uh, back uh, almost to their start lines. We're going to keep walking down the slope now, Pete, and we're going to come back to the embankment where the track meets the embankment. And in very near this area during the fighting, there was a cart track that actually crossed the embankment. The, the ground is slightly higher here. The embankment isn't so high. And there was a cart track which was actually cut through the embankment. And that was a key spot because it was one of the spots the Germans could get through very effectively without having to scramble over the embankment. So there was a lot of heavy fighting around the cart track uh, where that came through. So that was in the vicinity of where we are now on the railway embankment. And we're going to turn right and walk back back towards where we started at the, uh, the, the, the bridge in the embankment. And as we walk along this stretch, again, I really like just looking up at that embankment. It's been modernised. It's still used as a train line. Trains will still go screaming past overhead as you walk along here. But you can still see just little furrows. You can get a really great perspective of what it, were, what it must have been like for the troops who, who were sheltering there. And like always on these battlefields, anywhere that provides protection is going to be very heavily used. And it was also in this spot while the Australians were digging into their little scrapes and little trenches that they dug in the embankment that during the, um, the early phases of the attack, they came into quite heavy field gun fire. So this is artillery fire from the Germans who had broken through on the left, so had broken through uh, further in front of them, were able to get field guns through that breach and actually were blasting away at the Australians from behind with these field guns. Again, that would have been a pretty horrendous place to be. It's it's also one of my favourite spots because uh, as you're looking in that bank and you can see those little divots because that's where the Fourth Pioneer Battalion w- were digging. That's where they were trying to dig their holes right the way through uh, to give fields of fire for machine guns. And sadly, a lot of those holes that they dug in that embankment became uh, their burial locations because that's where the Germans buried them. They buried them in the holes that they'd been digging to uh, to for the machine gun position. So I always look along that bank and I often wonder how many are still there because there's an awful lot of missing from this battle as well and uh, not all of them were, were found and whether some of the men that are missing from this battle are still on the bank, on the railway embankment there. Well, let's keep walking along that embankment, which is now on our left, heading across the, across the ground. And, and of course, as, we, as each step we take, we've got to remember just how many men fought and died in, the, in this area. You, you, it's, it's overwhelming. You can never quite comprehend exactly you know, how many ghosts you're walking with, but this is definitely a place on the Western Front where you're going to be walking in the footsteps of a lot of men, both Australian and British as well, and, of course, Germans who died in this area. 
And speaking of those men who, who were killed uh, in this battle and in the area around it, we're going to keep walking another half a kilometre or so until we come back to that cemetery that you mentioned earlier in the walk, Pete. Now, it's, it's, it's one of my favourites on the Western Front. There's just, there's just something very, very moving about this cemetery. And for some reason, I have no idea why, but it's always the cemetery that I can imagine the grief of the pilgrims who came to visit their lost sons. I don't, I, there's just something about Dernancourt where it just, it's a cemetery that, to me, I can very effectively visualise devastated families returning to, uh, to visit the graves of their lost sons. It's, it's, it's just a really lovely place. It is. I think it's. Uh, I quite like the openness of it because the frontage. Um, yes, it's. You have to climb up some steps, but there's no real wall. It's just. Uh, it st- just starts in front of you. Um, so you climb up the steps into the uh, into the cemetery designed by Lutyens, who designed the great memorial uh, on the Teepval Ridge, the Teepval British Memorial to the Missing. Um, so Lutyens is uh, one of the great architects of the uh, of the cemeteries and the memorials. So it's it's a beautiful cemetery and it's quite a big cemetery as well because it uh, it was initially being used from 1915 onwards um uh, as soon as well as soon as the british moved on to the somme battlefields it, it was used as part of the casualty clearing area uh, so uh, there are original burials from that period from the battle of the somme uh, again used uh, for casualty clearing and then it becomes a a um a, a a cemetery that's going to be used for the bringing of the dead from cemeteries that are going to be closed down. So it's a concentration cemetery. So eventually it, it, it grows and grows and becomes a, a fairly substantial cemetery. What's interesting is not everybody is buried within the cemetery because the civil cemetery which abuts it also has military burials in there. And I always think that's kind of slightly odd in some ways. Why would you bury people in a civil cemetery when you've got a military cemetery next to it? We'll never really know, but uh, quite a few Australians are are buried. In fact, there are a lot of Australians who are buried within the communal cemetery and are not, strictly speaking, in the military cemetery. I always find it very interesting. You see this quite often on the Western Front. And and, uh, we actually did uh, a year or so ago a whole podcast on my Living History uh, channel uh, about the nature of cemeteries on the Western Front. So go and check that out if you haven't listened to it because it was a fascinating discussion that you and I had, Pete. But this is an example of one of those interesting types of cemeteries where you have a civilian cemetery, a communal cemetery as they're called because they, they belong to the commune, the, the villages in the area. And it, the impression I always have, Pete, when I visit them is it seems to me almost that in the early days of the war when fighting occurred and you, uh, you cleared the battlefield after a battle, it seemed to make sense that you said, well, there's already a cemetery there. There's already dead bodies in consecrated ground. It just sort of makes sense. We've got half a dozen blokes or we've got a dozen blokes to bury. It just kind of made sense that we'll just put them in the village cemetery. But then, of course, as fighting carried on and carried on and carried on, pretty swiftly it became obvious that the, 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 the civilian cemetery was going to be way too small to accommodate the number of burials. So then you see what we have here, which is an extension, where effectively they just took the field next to the cemetery or behind the cemetery and just filled it up with military burial. So it's it's quite always a fascinating visit when you come to these one of these communal cemeteries which then has a military extension behind it and um and you know it's 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 fascinating as you say we don't know why that they chose to bury some men in the extension and some in the in the communal cemetery. Uh, maybe it was simply the blokes felt that you know that maybe they were more religious or the, the, some of the guys in the burial parties and they felt that consecrated ground was where they should be laid rather than just in a field. We'll never actually know, but again, the great, the great, the great tapestry of mystery that comes from from exploring these military cemeteries. I absolutely love it. 
I do. It's one of my favourite subjects. And I think one of the, uh, the the odder aspects of this is that a couple of the guys uh, that are in, or quite a few of the guys that are in there, are not from the early days of the fighting. They're actually from the fighting of this period we're talking about, where there was a well-established military cemetery. So why on earth would you then not bury them in that that cemetery? As you said, we'll never know. And I uh, I think that's that's one of the great the great stories of the Western Front. Really, is that you will never know the answer to some of these quandaries. But it's it's great to have a think about it and try and work it out. Just to give some indication of, of the numbers we're talking about here, there's 127 soldiers buried in the communal cemetery, in the civilian cemetery, and then there's 2,162 in the military extension. So that shows the, the, the scale of the death and destruction that would come afterwards. And, uh, and, and it's always the case. If you always find a handful of burials in the communal cemetery and then an absolutely massive extension uh, beside it. Um, just a, a, it's it's a really lovely place to visit, it, especially in the afternoon light. Uh, Dernancourt Cemetery is a, is a really lovely place to be. It sounds like an odd choice of words, but I always find a, a very strong connection with both the history and the, and the men who are buried there, and I always really enjoy visiting cemeteries to to pay my respects to them. Um, any other things you want to add about this cemetery, Pete? It's 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 a, it's a really interesting spot. Well, just to give the number of Australians, there are three hundred and seventy eight Australians buried uh, uh, within the uh, within the cemetery itself. Um, I just want to talk a little bit about the the village, and uh, just because we can see the village, we can look back towards the village. Well, actually, we can't quite see it. It's over the uh, over the embankment. Uh, population uh, about five hundred people living in in the village now. Um, I suspect, as in most of these villages, it would have been a greater population uh, before the First World War and probably just after the First World War, as the village was rebuilt. And the the village has been completely rebuilt. It's exactly the same footprint, and that's one of the things that we should uh, stress as well, is that all the roads we've been walking, the tracks we've been walking, the railway embankments, it's not changed. Uh, the great thing about this battlefield, everything is exactly where it was during the fighting, and, and that that was destroyed has been put back. Well, that's... Really, the battlefield of Dernancourt, Pete. It's a, it's a really good spot. It's it's one of my favourites, in spite of the fact, as you say, we don't often visit it on a tour because it doesn't quite fit in. Most people don't know about it. It's just one of those ones in an odd place that um, that doesn't quite fit with a regular tour of the battlefields. But I would say to everyone listening that go and check it out. It's it's an extraordinary place. And a couple of hours spent walking in the footsteps of the Aussies and the Germans is, uh, is quite a remarkable experience on the battlefields. The, the final thing I should just add is that, uh, like a lot of these villages now, they're very proud of uh, what happened within their village and, and, and proud of the Australian effort to, to try and hold the village and to retake it from the Germans. And so we now have explanatory uh, panels close to the Marry, the town hall, um, or the village hall, should I perhaps say. And um, uh, yeah, and it's always worthwhile just going to have a look and you get sometimes get an insight into how the French view what went on in this area. The other thing that's not to everybody's taste, I have to say, is that there are murals now painted on the railway bridge. So the railway bridge is one of the, perhaps the key uh, points of the battlefield. And we have these uh, murals, one is of a nurse and uh, there are pictures of, uh, of soldiers. Um, and it's something the French have started doing is, is adding murals to the battlefield. As I say, not to everybody's uh, taste, but I think it's just nice that they, they feel like they want to enhance your experience in, in some way. That's very well said, Pete. It's it's we do owe a great debt of gratitude to the French and how they how they remember uh, the the soldiers who were fought, who fought and died there, and indeed the Belgians across the border. We should not forget about our, our friends in Belgium as well. It's 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 one of the most uh, it's one of the most rewarding aspects of visiting the battlefields are those interactions with the local people. So you don't need to speak French. It helps if you do, but um, even if you don't, it's worthwhile always just having a chat to the locals and uh, and maybe a cold beer in one of their pubs and uh, and and just finding out what they know about the battlefields. One of the most rewarding aspects of visiting this area. 
Pete, thank you so much. I always love, mate. I learned so much walking uh, walking in, in, in the footsteps of the Anzacs and these virtual tours. So just thank you so much for your contribution. It's always really great to, uh, to catch up with you and, uh, and walk this ground. A pleasure, mate. Really enjoyed it. Well, everyone, that was the Battle of Dernancourt, a great battlefield in the Somme region. We'll be back next week. Thank you for tuning in. Don't forget, subscribe to the podcast. Tell your friends. Please leave us a review, particularly on Apple Podcasts, because the more people that know about it, the more good content we can bring you. It's something we love doing. Until next week, thank you for joining us. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Thanks for listening to the podcast. If you would like to support the show, there's a couple of ways you can do it. Firstly, you can become a member For a small monthly fee, you can subscribe to the show and listen to every episode ad-free and also receive exclusive episodes directly from Pete and I. So see the link in the show notes to sign up at ACAST Plus and become a member of the show. Also, if you want to make a one-off contribution, you can now buy us a coffee. Visit buymeacoffee.com forward slash battlewalks and you can make a small contribution there. See you next week.